if you're new here, don't worry. Me too. Hi, this is Jenny with HazChats, where we're chatting about hazards, technology, and all the human stuff in between. And today, I'm going to talk about our story, the HazardUp story. How did this come to be? Why would you start a startup at a university? And what do we see for the future? But to get to that point, we got to go way back in time uh, of our human existence and talk about one of the most fundamental things that we as a human society do to survive. And that is share hazard adaptation information before, during, and after an emergency. So I want to give you an example of how this has been a core part of our human existence with some amazing local Kalapuya oral history. Somewhere between 13 and 18,000 years ago, there was a massive flood here in the Willamette Valley. And over the course of 500 generations of Kalapuya, they have passed down the story of how their ancestors survived the flood by seeking refuge on Mary's Peak. And since then, Mary's Peak has been a sacred place for the Kalapuya. So first, that is an incredible and astounding oral history. Uh, when we say time immemorial, we really mean as long as we can remember. And that aspect that this piece of information, if there's a big flood, you can find refuge on Mary's Peak, is not only a story of how to survive, it's also a culturally significant piece of information for the Kalapuya. Now, I gained this information by watching a video created by the cultural resource director, Mr. David Harrelson of the Confederate Tribes of the Grand Ronde. And I'll include his YouTube video link in our description. But sharing their story of resilience has interwoven itself into their cultural and what they find sacred. And I'm sharing this with you for two major reasons. The first one being that you know, here, as I'm recording this on the Oregon State University campus, uh, we are on the traditional lands of the Kalapuya people, by which we still are learning from and are in that sense of reckoning and recognizing how our presence here uh, as a land-grant university has deep historical roots of colonialism and how we are still benefiting from the information that has been passed down through the generations of indigenous Kalapuya and the indigenous tribes here in Oregon. And secondly, this example of oral history passing down survival strategy is one of the core aspects of our human existence. And you'll see this in many cultures, every culture that we have here, because it is so fundamental to our survival and ensuring the next generation continues on. So those valuable pieces of information can look like so many things, uh, including run to this mountain if there's a flood or use this plant for medicinal purposes, or here's how we as a community come together to share in our solidarity over the traumatic event that just happened. So sharing emergency and hazard adaptation information is a core part of all of our histories, and it's a major part of our present and future. And like all things, it's adapting to this new era. And let me tell you about this new era we are in. First, we're not only relying on our oral histories and our oral traditions, we're also relying on technology to help facilitate sharing this information. And we have new social systems like emergency management, public safety, 
public health that we've created to help respond en masse to whenever disasters or emergencies happen. And this is so critical as we are entering into a lot of the ramifications we're seeing with a changing climate. We're seeing more disasters happen and they are way more severe uh, than we've ever had to really deal with before as a humanity. So that's three major changes that are, you know, compared to our ancestors, we've got more technology, we have more people and more social systems, and we're seeing more hazards and disasters than ever before. Now, here's where the additional drama comes in. Each of these three areas, the tech, the social systems, and climate change, are, are currently undergoing massive reckonings. And when I say reckonings, I mean we the people, whether that's fighting biases that are happening in tech and in our social systems, or fighting against large corporations that are polluting and causing further damage to our environment. Meaning there have been deep problems found in each of these spaces and we the people are standing up and wanting more, whether that's equitable service from our public safety and our public response, holding technology accountable for the harms it's created, like we're seeing with Facebook right now, or holding large polluters accountable and seeking new ways for industry to function without it causing harmful impact to our environment. So the scene you should be seeing in your head right now is a new era. And as we're entering this new era, we are entering with reckonings. And here's a fundamental truth that I want to make very clear. We are still in the Wild West a bit here, meaning we are still learning, starting to create policy and create movements to better adapt to where we are at as a human society. So now that we're on the same page and in the same scene, Enter Hazadap, because this is the setting that Hazadap was born in. And I'm starting to remember this line from Batman where Bane says, Oh, you think the darkness will help you? I was born in the dark. I was molded by it. And that's exactly how Hazadap is right now. We are being shaped at a most fundamental stage of our startup in this massive three reckonings at one of the most critical intersections of our human existence. Our story begins with a sliding glass door moment where a seemingly inconsequential moment completely changed everything. So it's 2017 and I am in my very first year of being a global health master student at Oregon State University. My jam is disasters and the systems that respond. I was on track to become an emergency manager. Now, if you don't know what who or what emergency managers are, let me tell you about these baddies. When major disaster happens, the emergency manager who is responsible for an area, maybe that's a city jurisdiction or maybe even a university, they coordinate the response. So they're the ones who start gathering all of the agencies needed and coordinating how we are going to help people in the response. Another fundamental thing that emergency managers do is prepare their communities. So you may have seen this in your own community where an emergency manager and maybe their teammates may host a community gathering or presentation about an important hazard for that area. And they teach local community members how to prepare, what to do if it happens, and how we can recover together. 
Now, if you've ever been to a local community preparedness event, uh, you'll know that it's normally between 10 and 20 people that come listening to an emergency manager teach off of a PowerPoint uh, and asking questions about needs and concerns that the community has. My emergency manager mentor uh, would often call herself a party planner because that is often what it felt like. We are preparing a party. Maybe we'd have some, you know, nibbles or something to kind of help entice people to come. And at the end of it, we are handing out pamphlets or other resources to help people uh, take that information home with them. So as we're preparing for this event, I start to notice that we only have English and Spanish for a lot of our hazard content. And I know that there are way more languages spoken here in Oregon besides just English and Spanish. I'm also noticing a really limited amount of hazard information that's geared toward people with disabilities in these pamphlets. And even with our limited amounts, all of those pamphlets are still taking up a ton of space in our emergency management storage. So you can imagine how one, having a pamphlet available or that information available in every language on every hazard and with every possible need of intersection, not just disabilities, but kids, uh, elderly, pets, would require a whole warehouse and printing press to make sure we're providing enough information for everybody. So that moment of realizing, oh my gosh, not everyone is going to get the information they need struck me like a lightning bolt. And as I've asked emergency managers about this, the reason usually comes down to funding and available resources out there that they can conducively have for their community. It takes time and effort and a budget to create these resources and then a place to store them. So what you'll see across America is that many of our emergency managers don't have the resources they may need to reach everyone in the public. This means people are vulnerable. And this baffled me. We, we, we have Facebook, we have all of this incredible, you know, social media technology, but we still are beholden to these limitations uh, in emergency management. One of the most critical things in our human existence it was that moment of, oh my gosh, we need better tools and resources to support those that are going out to engage our communities and prepare them. And like most people in our new tech age, I thought, oh, surely there's an app for that. Well, no, not really. There's a lot of little apps that can help out with some parts of preparation, uh, but not a lot of apps that can do preparation, response, and recovery all in one and be affordable for the public and the emergency manager. So then I thought, okay, well, let me just research. Surely someone's building this. Somebody's gotta be doing something about this. This is a big deal. And I came to learn that there were not entities out there that were building technology or communication tools with equitable response at their core mission. And when I say equitable response, I'm meaning having the language that you need to understand this information, having the information that's relevant to your situation. Do you have kids with you? Are you caring for an elderly person? Are you a person with a disability who may need additional assistance? Throw in the variable of the hazard, you know, which hazard are you dealing with? Is it a tornado? Is it a blizzard? Is it a flood? 
each hazard has their own adaptation strategy, whether that's get to higher ground, evacuate when you hear this, uh, or if you see these signs, here's what you need to do specifically. The bottom line here is we need equitable information or receiver-oriented information, and we just don't have the technology to facilitate that. Now, I don't share this to blame anybody, especially our emergency managers. They have missions of inclusion and equity, but if they don't have the tools that they need, they're limited to the resources that they can afford. And emergency managers are incredibly busy people building resilience and preparation for their communities. They don't have time to go off and just make an app. So we know it's a problem, but we don't really have a solution to fix it. And if we're looking to big tech to make that, well, uh, we're going to be disappointed because often big tech follows that profit over people model, which is so dangerous here in this situation. So I knew we couldn't just wait for Facebook or uh, any other entity to, to make something like this. And like all bureaucracies, if we were waiting for the government to make it, it's going to take a lot longer than what we need. And we needed this yesterday. So there I am left with this massive conundrum. We've got this big problem everybody knows about, but we don't see solutions being created yet. And we don't really have an entity that we can reliably rely on to create this in a timely manner. So then who? Who is going to build this massive idea of equitable emergency information technology? And that's when that voice inside me said, you, you will. Now, you may be thinking the same thing that I did at that moment. Uh, Jenny, uh, sm small reminder, you don't have a background in tech and you don't have a background in business. So uh, are you sure you're qualified? And it was at that moment that the voice responded, it is because of this, you are the best person for this job. So I grabbed my trusty whiteboard and I wrote it all out. And if you've ever heard of a frisson moment, this was it for me, where you have this heightened sense of, oh my gosh, this is a very important moment. So I filmed it. And I filmed myself in 2017 in my pajamas, drawing out this idea and realizing this is huge. It's way bigger than me, but I know this is my path. This is it. I've never felt anything more resounding in my life that this is what you are here to do. So from that moment, everything changed. No longer was I planning to become an emergency manager. I was looking how to make apps and starting to get into coding languages and building a business. What does this even look like? And I'm so thankful that that happened while I was still in school because Oregon State University actually had a ton of resources to help support that transition an investigation into, well, if we're going to do this, how do we do it right? How do we do this equitably? And how do we prevent harm from happening from this technology? So I found an advisor who encouraged me and said, yeah, that is a PhD question. You should definitely do a PhD on this. And little secret for y'all, I never had any intention to become a PhD student. Uh, I wanted to be someone who was on the ground working with the people. So it was also a bit intimidating to start a PhD and start a business at the same time. 
But I want to share my specific strategy and the resources I used to make this transition happen and build Hazadap as it has become today. Because I know there are so many other brilliant minds out there that are seeing these big problems and realizing we need something different. How do we do this? So step one for me with that big question was finding a academic advisor who also saw the value of the question and said, yes, this should be a PhD and accepted me into their geography PhD program. And geography is this incredible, beautiful world where you can take big problems and make tools and solutions for them. So I highly recommend geography if anybody is finding themselves looking for that space to explore both the need and the solution. So it was the perfect and most natural next step for me. So I'm starting my initial investigation. What is it actually going to take to make this happen? And step one is, well, I don't know how to make an app. So I better start learning how you do that. So besides starting to learn coding languages on my own, I started to take a couple computer science courses. And the first one I ever took was human computer interaction with Dr. Margaret Burnett, who is a legend in her own right. But this is a class that focuses on how humans interact with interfaces and how we can make them more inclusive for all types of users. And over the course of the class, we are going to, and over the course of the class, we're going to be creating inclusive interfaces for different solutions. And at the very beginning of the class, Dr. Burnett says, you know, if anybody has a tech idea you want to share and start trying to create inclusive interfaces, you can do that. So 10 minutes before class, I grab a piece of paper and sketch out my idea. And then Dr. B opened the floor and I marched myself on up there in front of that entire class of computer science graduate students, which is kind of intimidating if you've never done that before. But I took my little sketch up there and put it under the projector and said, I want to build an app that helps everyone adapt to hazards no matter where they go or what they face. Kind of like a personal emergency manager in your pocket. And to my ultimate delight, not one, not two, but seven computer science graduate students came forward and said, yes, let's do this. Now, mind you, this is, again, just a class project. So we're really just beating up this idea and actually creating images and interfaces for this idea so that we can later develop it. So that was a huge affirmation for me that, hey, your peers see the potential in this and want to actually work with you on this amazing. But the next big affirmation on yes, this is the right path came from our local community. That very same term, our local Corvallis city government was having an event called Imagine Corvallis 2040. And the theme was community resilience. Awesome. So what the event entailed was coming to pitch ideas with other community members and the local emergency management would award uh, some you know, small grants to help kickstart those ideas. So I asked my classmates, would anybody like to go with me and pitch this idea? And besides me actually standing up in front of class and telling my classmates about this, I had never pitched this to a public audience, just my husband and my dogs. But a few of them said, yeah, okay, let's go do this. So again, got up in front of an audience I've never been in front of before and said, we have an idea and the potential to create something that helps everyone adapt to hazards no matter where they go or what they face. 
Now, to be honest, it was actually a lot more clunky than that uh, because I was definitely up there winging it. I haven't had the, had the chance to really narrow down that zingy little one-liner, but that's okay. That takes time. And what they did see was the passion and they saw the idea. And we ended up placing in the pitch competition and we were able to get that affirmation from our local community, our local emergency managers, and a $200 prize with a go get them kids. It was amazing. And it was really that first time that my classmates and I were looking at each other and saying, okay, this, we could do this. We could really do this. So this human computer interaction class did a lot for me. First, it helped me start the basis of a team. This is actually where I met my two co-founders, Uday and Omid, and we were able to start creating interface prototypes that we could later show to the community and get their approval. So it was a huge successful moment for us in the spring of 2019. At that same time, I also joined the university's incubator program called the Advantage Accelerator. And this was that opportunity to not only beat up the idea and see is this a viable business model, uh, but to also start forming the business. So through the Advantage Accelerator, not only did I get that get through that big learning curve of starting a business, we also got our very first investment with OSU. So OSU is a partner with the company, Hazadap. And those funds that came in from that small investment uh, were instrumental in helping build out our team and continue to develop the product from the prototypes that we had started to create in class together. So picture this, summer 19, a whole bunch of developers and experts getting together almost every day for the summer to meet in a room and develop and build an idea filled with whiteboards. It was spectacular. And at the end of the summer, we had a minimum viable product. Now, like in all things in life, the very first thing you often create isn't your final masterpiece. So the MVP that we created has set that foundation and we've continued to develop it and refine it hand in hand with our local community and our local emergency management. Now, mind you, we're all still in school uh, and we are all juggling life, teaching and research at the same time. So compared to a full-time startup, our pace is a little bit slower, but we found that the culture and attitude that we were creating was one of excitement and joy to be building something that you were genuinely passionate about together with other brilliant minds. Oh, you can't ask for better. And since then, we have just continued to create, if I do say so myself, the most incredible team possible for Hazadap. And I'm so proud of us because not only did we juggle all the things between uh, school and starting a startup together, we also made it through what is the worst pandemic that we've seen in our human history. And we are still moving strong. And that's a testament in itself because, like I mentioned, we were meeting all the time on campus and we were having those great in-person brainstorming sessions. And we had to immediately just, boom, switch over to virtual. And we did so. It was amazing. And I think that the startup life is really conducive to that, you know, async meeting and virtual meeting atmosphere. So that actually worked out pretty well for us. And we continued to make progress. Definitely at a slower rate, we were, you know, not only adjusting to what is pandemic life, but 
we also got the opportunity to help co-start a community response collective called the COVID Response Collective, which was such an amazing opportunity for us as a teeny tiny little startup and a local community member to actually build a digital space for our local communities to connect because we were all feeling lonely during lockdown and to help share resources. We were helping sending masks to people who didn't have any and just overall helping people connect to local resources as we all adjusted and adapted to pandemic life. So it was super cool that one of our teammates, Shrek and Tata, started the CRC and asked Hazada, hey, come help me develop this. It's starting to grow quick. And it went from a you know modest uh, Discord group of 75 people to over 300 people spanning across the Pacific Northwest, moving resources, and generally just being there and providing a space for our community. So one of the things I'm most proud that we as a young startup were able to do and be a part of And mind you, again, we're pre-revenue, we're just students, but we were making real impact. And that is the thing I want to empower everyone here today. Doesn't matter what stage you're in, you can make incredible impact in your communities. Now, if you ask me to look back, 2020 seems like a blur, and I'm sure everyone kind of feels like that. But some really significant and incredible progress happened for us at Hazadap. And despite challenges that came with not just startup life and school, but pandemic and all of the other disasters and social uprisings that we saw, we continued to make progress. We were continuing to learn, absorb all of these changes happening at once and be absolutely molded by them. It was an intense pressure pot, not going to lie. But we kept making progress. And this year, May 2021, we released our very first app. <laughs> I'm so proud of us. It's the Hazard App Hazard Guide. And it is the official, official, official minimum viable product. Or we also kind of like to call it our minimum lovable product. It's a hazard guide. And it offers customizable hazard information. So whether you've got the kids, pets, elderly parents, or other specific intersections that require more information, we got you. And that's what we've been building and enhancing ever since. So now you're caught up to where we're at right now. But what does the future look like for Hazadab? Well, I'm excited to tell you. Now, you'll have to keep this on the down low, but we're already building the next biggest thing. But this one is a bit different in that it's going to be not just for the public, but we're also building stuff for our emergency management professionals. And this means that we're not too far from making our first revenue. And I can't tell you how exciting that is, but also you know, we want to do this right. So we aren't rushing to try to make our product be profitable. What we're actually first doing is actually getting our community on board again. And what that looks like is a lot of community interviews, meetings, starting relationships, focus groups, getting incredibly valuable feedback. Because even though we've done our homework, we've done our research, nothing will ever replace asking people, hey, What's your experience? What are the challenges that you see? And how can we make this 
better for you. So right now, that's what we're starting to really ramp up. Uh, we just brought on our first incredible, I keep saying incredible, um, but really oh, everything's incredible. We just brought on our amazing senior digital marketing manager, Paige, who, hey Paige, excited for you to get this podcast uh, and continue to tell the world about what we're doing, what we're building, because we have something that can save lives. It's free. It's on the App Store and we want you to have it. I'm going to keep you updated with all of our progress on the next big things. And we're going to start deep diving into a lot of the really important things that we all need to consider. How are we going to adapt to climate change? How does tech play into this? And how are we making this equitable and inclusive for everyone? Thank you for joining us today at Has Chats and listening to our story. I hope that for all of you brilliant minds out there who have ideas bubbling up and aren't sure where to start, that maybe there were some things that you took away from here that can be helpful for you. And if nothing else, be encouraged that you don't have to be a tech professional. You don't have to be a business major to start a startup with an amazing idea and bring real impact to your community. This is Jenny signing off with your reminder, lean into change and get excited to get outside of your comfort zone because we are in a new disaster era and we're all going to have to adapt here.